Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and I have alongside me today Mike Chung. Mike, how's your fall treating you so far? The leaves are turning. Central Park is still, as always, excellent for a run. And I'm excited about this international series that we're going to be embarking on, Adam. Yes, uh, we promised in our inaugural introductory episode, episode one, that this podcast series would include an international series where we had an opportunity to interview some of the leading cardiothoracic imaging experts throughout the world. And we're going to kick off the international series component of the podcast shortly. The two of us are going to Chengdu, China, where we're going to be spending some time at West China Hospital running a thoracic imaging symposium. So we're looking forward to that and looking forward to bringing you some international insight from China and elsewhere throughout the world in the coming months. But today's episode is much more local because we are in the Upper East Side of Manhattan on 77th and Lexington at a place called Carnegie Whole Radiology, which is a small private practice radiology group that focuses on cardiovascular imaging. And today we have the opportunity to spend time with Dr. Stephen Wolf. Dr. Stephen Wolf graduated summa cum laude from Yale College and went on to receive his MD and PhD from Duke University. He completed a radiology residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital and is a fellow of the American College of Radiology, an honor bestowed on fewer than 10% of its members. Dr. Wolf is a nationally recognized expert in cardiac MRI. He was formerly a senior clinical investigator at the National Institutes of Health and director of cardiovascular MRI and CT at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. Dr. Wolf has been listed as one of the top doctors in New York by New York Magazine. He has directed more than 40 courses and workshops and holds several U.S. patents. Dr. Wolf also owns and operates two medical device companies as well. Thank you for having us, Dr. Wolf. How are you doing, Dr. Wolf? I'm fine, thanks. Maybe we could start just by learning a little bit about you and where you're from and how you came into going into medicine and radiology and developed a niche in cardiac imaging. Uh, Sure. So uh, I grew up in Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, As far as being a physician, it's one of those decisions I'm happy I made, but probably didn't think as much about it as I should have. A lot of the, the males in my family were physicians. My father was a physician. My grandfather was a physician. My uncle uh, was a physician. I was better in math and science than I was in English and history, so it sort of seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, As far as radiology goes, uh, I was a medical student in uh, Duke. 
my medicine rotation was at the Durham VA hospital at a time when the Durham VA wasn't air conditioned or at least wasn't air conditioned very much. And the nurses were on strike during my rotation. So there was a lot of extraneous work that, that we needed to do. And my favorite part of the day was uh, late in the afternoons when we go down to radiology, which was heavily air conditioned because of all the equipment <laughs> that it had. And uh, we were focused on trying to make diagnoses, which I found to be very interesting. And I was interested in technology and computers. And I think that's probably what first got me thinking about radiology. Uh, Dr. Wolf, uh, at one point you served as the senior clinical investigator at the National Institute of Health and director of cardiovascular MRI and CT at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. Uh, could you share a little bit about those experiences with us? Uh, sure. Let, let me tell you a little bit about uh, my experience at the NIH. Uh, I actually was at the NIH a few times. Uh, the first time was actually in medical school. Duke required medical students to spend one of their four years doing basic science research. At the time, there was this new program at the NIH that was run by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Because of my interest in radiology, I looked for a lab that did something related. Uh, and I stumbled across the laboratory of a, a Dr. Robert Balaban, who specialized in the study of cardiac physiology and metabolism using magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Although I knew virtually nothing about him or his lab, I decided to work there, and it was by far the single best professional decision I made in my life. It was in his lab that I fell in love with research, uh, even though I had done it before. I think having a good mentor uh, was really important to me. Uh, Bob taught me that research was a search for the truth. Probably most importantly, he taught me to question assumptions that people take for granted, especially when they're not well supported by experimental evidence. He supervised me in areas where I could do experiments that could lead to results that, that no one could predict. I can remember being so excited by an upcoming experiment that I couldn't go to sleep the night before. And, and I'm not making this up. When I drove to the parking lot, I actually broke into a run to get to lab to start the experiment. I was so excited to find out what the answer would be. So th that kind of feeling is, is truly wonderful. And um, to my parents' great consternation, I decided to take a year off and spend a second year uh, working there. And they were afraid, of course, that I would never go back to medical school. But, but while I was in Bob's lab, I learned a lot about physiology and a tremendous amount about basic MR physics. I actually designed, built, and soldered my own MRI coils. Uh, but my greatest achievement at the time was inventing uh, a technique called magnetization transfer imaging, which turned into its own scientific field. Uh, we patented the technique and it's currently used on MRI scanners in hospitals throughout the world. And being able to see my research benefit patients was deeply satisfying and really hooked me on research for life. After working there for a couple of years, I actually did go back to medical school. I, I even got a PhD for the work that I had done at the NIH. And I completed a radiology residency at Johns Hopkins. And when it came time to look for a job, uh, healthcare was in flux. Bill Clinton was president and Hillary was looking to fundamentally change healthcare. Uh, and Bob was looking to start a clinical cardiac MRI program at the NIH. So rather than apply for a traditional fellowship, uh, I decided to go back there and actually directed for a few years their uh, first cardiac MRI program. Did you have a lot of people train under you at that point? Did you, um, did you like, then serve as a mentor to many others who would uh, be kind of going into cardiac imaging? 
Yes. So uh, that's one of the things that I found very satisfying uh, about it. Right from residency, I was in a position where I had probably 10 or 15 people directly reporting to me and uh, we were doing research and it was a lot of fun uh, mentoring people in the lab. And uh, of course, Bob was also mentoring people and uh, it was really probably professionally one of the most satisfying uh, times of my life. It's fascinating to me that your background is so strong in research and academia, Johns Hopkins and an MD, PhD, um, but we're sitting here now in your private practice here in the Upper East Side. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Carnegie Hill Radiology and your private practice here? Sure. So I wound up leaving the, the NIH in, in 1997 and went into private practice and have done cardiac MRI ever since. The funny thing is, one of the reasons I left the NIH was that I believed at the time that the rapid adoption of cardiac MRI in clinical practice was, was imminent, uh, and I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, my timing was really wrong on that prediction, obviously. Uh, but to be fair, there are a lot of reasons why cardiac MRI has been slow to gain a more prominent role. The technology and its capabilities are as compelling as ever. But there are a lot of economic and political issues that have impeded its adoption, especially in this country. Uh, many people don't realize it, but at least in the U.S., uh, cardiac MRI actually plays a much more dominant role in Europe than it does here. And I think that these things will eventually be sorted out, and, and the future of cardiac MRI is still very, very bright. As for your question about cardiovascular imaging in private practice, well, that's a political issue as well. Politicians today are talking about Medicare for all. If that happens, there's not going to be any private practice for anybody. That would be too bad because private practices are much more efficient than hospitals at providing outpatient imaging. And if people were really serious about improving the cost effectiveness of imaging, hospitals would be limited to providing imaging to inpatients only. Uh, the hospital administrators may not like to hear it, but, but it's the truth. You know, a lot of the uh, individual radiology private practices in this country are being uh, consolidated either by hospitals or by other larger uh, consolidating companies. It's a little bit different than what has happened in the past in other areas of business. For instance, uh, my great-grandparents used to own a dry goods store in New Jersey, and I'm sure they were unhappy when they were uh, put out of business by the neighborhood uh, grocery chain. But even though I didn't get to meet them, I'm sure they probably understood uh, why it was happening. The grocery store chains provided a uh, better selection at a cheaper price. And there was some logic to why the dry goods stores went away. But in, in healthcare and imaging, uh, the story is a little bit different. Uh, because of market power, a lot of the hospitals and the consolidating companies, they actually are able to get much more for reimbursement than uh, individual radiology practices. And the reason is that they've got market power. And these different prices that they're able to charge are not insignificant. They can be two and sometimes three times as much as what a private radiology practice would get paid for doing exactly the same procedure. And the difference between what happened to my great-grandparents and their dry goods stores, they were actually replaced by a business that provided a better selection at a lesser price. But here, a lot of times, the radiologists are being replaced, the private radiology practices are being replaced 
by entities that actually charge more and don't necessarily provide even a better service. That's really interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious for this practice, which is small with just a couple of partners and focuses on cardiothoracic and cardiovascular imaging, how did it develop and how did it start? Uh, was it a challenge early on to develop referral patterns from clinicians uh, that would be familiar with the group and the practice? Here in New York City, we're in the shadow of some of the giant Manhattan hospitals. How did the practice gain a foothold in developing referral patterns and relationships with clinicians? I think we were early to the game in the sense that there wasn't a lot of cardiac MRI being done when we started our private practice and we developed a reputation in the community for being good at it. And uh, as far as competition goes, I think there wasn't a lot of it early on and still isn't as much as there is in other fields of imaging because to be quite honest with you, cardiac MRI doesn't pay very well for the amount of time and trouble that it takes to do it. Uh, you need to have a specialized uh, sequences on the scanner, specialized software to analyze the images. It takes uh, more time to quantify and segment the images typically than a typical brain MRI might. It, it takes more time on the scanner, yet the reimbursement is comparable to a standard brain MRI. So I think a lot of the imaging community was happy that somebody else was doing this so that they wouldn't need to. Once we developed a reputation in that area, we were able to, to keep that, that business. But because cardiac MR is not as profitable for all those reasons that you mentioned, is it, is it a difficult model for maybe some of our listeners who are in private practice that are looking to do more cardiac or higher cardiac imagers? Is it a viable business model in light of the fact that it's not as profitable as just doing five knee MRIs in the same amount of time you could do one cardiac case? So, so it, is, it is viable because our private practice, uh, we've, we've been doing it for about 20 years. It's just not as profitable, say, for instance, as doing a whole bunch of brains and spines and knees and shoulders in the sense that you could do more of those procedures with less work. But having said that, there's not a lot of marketing costs. Uh, if you're the only person doing it, there's not a lot of competition and people are happy just to have somebody provide a good service. And we get referrals from all over the tri-state area, even from physicians who have hospitals that do do cardiac MRI because they know the service that they get here is superior to the service that they're going to get at their own institution. So you obviously talked about some of the limitations that exist inherently within cardiac MR. How has your practice been able to optimize kind of the workflow? Could you talk a little bit about like your scan times or your table times for your patients? Are they, are, are they where you want them to be? And All right, so our typical cardiac study will take 30 to 40 minutes we are a private practice. We need to be able to schedule things uh, on a regular basis and be able to uh, answer the question in a reasonable amount of time, not just for financial reasons, but because a lot of patients don't want to spend more than that amount of time in the scanner uh, because they're outpatients, they could choose to go anywhere. So we, we have a focused uh, exam that looks at what the question is that's being ex uh, asked and I will protocol the cases the day before to make sure that the technologist knows exactly what parts of the exam need to be done to, in order to be able to answer the question. So rather than a one-size-fits-all protocol, which is used at many large institutions where the scan times can be an hour or more, uh, our scan times are 
pretty much in line with what you'd expect clinically in an outpatient center. You might have hinted at this a little bit, but many residents and trainees in radiology feel that if they choose a fellowship and focus on cardiothoracic imaging, uh, they may be limiting some of their career options in private practice. In your opinion, what what do you think about this? So it used to be that physicians in private practice needed a broad range of skills. However, the trend in private practice is towards subspecialization in all areas, not just cardiac MR. And while it's true there are more openings for neuroradiologists than thoracic radiologists, there are also more applicants in those areas. And the potential for growth, I would argue, for cardiac MRI is much greater than it is in these other areas. Uh, My recommendation is to do what you enjoy. Uh, The strategy worked for me. And, And like I tell my kids, if you like something, you'll work harder at it, be better at it, and most likely be more successful at it than something else which you enjoy less. Dr. Wolf, you own two medical device companies and in addition have developed your own cardiac MR software and have several patents as well. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about those things? Sure. Uh, I, I have two medical device companies, mostly because of unmet needs that I encountered in my career as a radiologist. I found it was more satisfying to work on solutions than it was to complain to manufacturers waiting endlessly for them to solve my problems for me. Uh, One company I own is called NeoCoil. They they make a number of products, including a variety of MRI coils and wireless MR patient communication and entertainment systems. Um, The other company is called Neosoft, and and they make several software packages. Its flagship product is Sweetheart. Uh, It's S-U-I-T-E for a suite of cardiac applications. Um, And it's used in cardiac MRI analysis. It's an outstanding product, and it's been a passion of mine to develop over the last several years. What really sets it apart from other products is the amount of artificial intelligence and deep learning that it uses. As you know, it can take quite some time to analyze a cardiac MRI study due to the many images that are required. Uh, Sweetheart saves physicians time by automatically identifying the images that are required and analyzing function, flow, and late gadolinium enhancement without any user input. The user no longer needs to draw all those circles manually. Sweetheart also presents the images in a standardized fashion and at the same absolute magnification so they can be reviewed quickly. The the images are automatically displayed side by side so that function can easily be compared to viability, for example. And if there's a prior study, the software automatically knows to load it in advance and present the images side by side with those from the current study for comparison. The software is a total game changer in terms of saving physicians time and deep learning is having a tremendous impact on image analysis and physician workflow in cardiac MRI as as well as other areas of radiology. Mike and I had the opportunity to see your cardiac MR software earlier this morning and it it looks terrific. Uh, I think that you mentioned to us that some of the people that use it have claims it cuts their analysis time by as much as 80%. That's, that's remarkable. Yes, it's, um, it's really a game changer. And uh, I think it's going to be a big boost to cardiac MR because right now when we have fellows that come by and look at doing cardiac MR and seeing the intensive amount of time tracing uh, circles, uh, they get turned off and want to go in other areas of, of imaging. And I think this is something that will encourage people to do it and the improved efficiency is, is just one benefit. There's other benefits like improved reproducibility so that people, if they're not as experienced, can get the same results, for instance, 
as somebody who is much more experienced. So I think it's going to be a big uh, win for cardiac MR. What iteration or version of Sweetheart are we working with currently? Is it you know it's first form or are we multiple iterations down the line? Uh, we're currently just a few weeks ago released Sweetheart 5.0. So uh, each version has progressively more AI and deep learning and I expect that's going to keep going. And if you look at the older releases, you can see the dramatic improvement in terms of uh, the capabilities of the software. And do you, you yourself, you actually deal with the nitty gritty and the engineering of the software or do you kind of have the vision and you impart that upon like the, the builders and the engineers? Sure. So I, I don't really program or code, uh, but we do have engineers uh, that, that do this for us, a, a, a large group of engineers actually. And uh, we have meetings weekly where we review where we are with the software and, and where we need to go. And they uh, make the changes. It's a, it's a complicated process, uh, complying with all the FDA regulations, but it, it's incredibly worthwhile when you see the final product. And just in terms of the two medical device companies, I think a lot of our listeners who maybe have spent much or all of their careers in academics, we often don't think about um, launching a project like founding a medical device company. How is it that you, when you first started, how did you, did you have mentors that helped kind of show you the path and how to be successful in doing something like that? Or was it something that you figured out on your own? How, how did you... Uh, gain traction in, in having uh, something like that be successful? So, so I was very fortunate when I was in private practice because I had the flexibility to be able to take advantage of this opportunity. If I had been part of a large hospital organization, many of those uh, organizations make physicians sign away their intellectual property and uh, wouldn't allow physicians to be able to innovate uh, the way that I did. And so I've been very fortunate in that regard. Uh, and I think it's a shame because I think a lot of people have a lot to contribute but are prevented from doing it by the limitations of their of their work environment. As far as uh, having any guide, the interesting thing is I, I probably would have to credit the uh, uh, colleagues that I had at the General Electric Company because originally I would go to them and complain if the machine wasn't doing something that I needed. And they would have a long list of complaints from all their users and they would have a finite amount of resources and they would draw a line and anything that was above the line got done. But the vast majority of things were below the line. And I was talking to one of uh, these uh, businessmen after a meeting, a, a users group meeting, and he lamented that he wished he had more people who would try to do their best with what it is that they had rather than just complain endlessly. And that's what I internalized and decided at that point that I would uh, try and be part of the solution as part of just as opposed to just complaining about the problem. And I just started one employee at a time and I funded the first employee out of my own salary. And when that project became successful, I used the proceeds from that project to organically grow the business. And now we have almost 100 employees. Dr. Wolf, as you sort of transition maybe from uh, the middle to later parts of your career at this point, um, looking back, are there certain accomplishments or perhaps certain disappointments that you might be willing to share with us? Sure. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about my biggest professional disappointment. Uh, That might be of interest. I, I spent much of my career using MRI to quantify mitral regurgitation. 
For years, I noticed that in many patients, there was an extreme discordance between MRI and echocardiography. For example, I would see a patient with mild mitral regurgitation on MRI being sent for cardiac surgery because the echocardiogram said it was severe. After many years of research, we were able to finally demonstrate that MRI was right and that echocardiography was wrong. We did this by showing that one could use the severity of mitral regurgitation as determined by MRI to accurately predict the decrease in size of the left ventricle after surgical correction, whereas MR severity as determined by echocardiography could not predict the response to surgery. We published our results, which was a prospective multicenter trial in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, which is cardiology's top journal. Yet the cardiology community continues to send patients for unnecessary surgery. By our estimate, more than half of those open heart surgeries are unwarranted. Not only are the patients having needless complications from these surgeries, including major complications like death, but it's costing our healthcare system literally several hundred million dollars annually just for this one valve. With all the political talk these days about rising healthcare costs and who should and shouldn't be covered, it's disappointing that so little is mentioned about making healthcare more cost effective. Everybody knows that we spend more as a country on healthcare than any other country, yet the benefits that we get are not even as good as some countries that spend less. And this is one example as to why. The government will spend billions on research trying to find a cure for a disease, yet here's a way we could provide better healthcare just by doing nothing. And we would save a huge amount of money, which we could use for something else, like covering the healthcare of people who aren't covered. Eventually it's going to happen, but it's taking far too long. And it really has been a huge disappointment to me not being able to see the change faster. That's really eye-opening. How long ago was that article published in Jack? About three years ago. And has there been any, I understand there's been a lot of pushback from the cardiology community, but has there been any, over time, has there been some, you know, have they been somewhat receptive to recognizing that this is a real issue? Sure. So in my clinical practice, we have physicians who have experience using us and have experience following their patients and seeing that the ones that we say have mild mitral regurgitation actually do fine with no treatment. But those physicians are a tiny fraction of the cardiologists in the greater New York area or in this country. And there's a terrible, perverse incentive by the medical industrial complex to intervene. Uh, economically, everybody is incentivized to do something and they risk by not doing something the potential, for instance, of a malpractice lawsuit. And unfortunately, until these data are repeated and more experience is gained, we're going to keep hurting patients and, and wasting money. And while I understand that things do take time, there's absolutely no reason that this has taken as long as it has and unfortunately is going to probably take a lot longer even now going forward. I think that's a really interesting topic and a really critical discussion. Is there anything that you think that could be, could be done in this specific example or other similar examples in medicine that could, that could be a solution? Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm here doing this podcast with you and talking about it. 
I think that uh, the more people know about these examples, and to be fair, this is not the only example. We all hear about unnecessary back surgeries and knee arthroscopies, uh, and uh, this is just yet one more example of the people that are responsible for delivering health care not policing themselves and doing a good job husbanding our resources. And instead of fighting amongst each other as to who should get health care and who shouldn't, there's a much better question to ask, which is how do we deliver health care more efficiently so that everybody not only gets better health care than what we have now, but that everybody is covered? It's possible to do both. As we get to closing, Dr. Wolf, uh, do you have any advice to share with any young radiologists or trainees? Do what you love. Very simple. I like it. And finally, um, what are your greatest hopes and concerns for the future of cardiovascular imaging um, in private practice, in general, in academia, over the course of the coming decade, let's say? Where do you see the trajectory of cardiovascular imaging taking us? I think cardiac MRI has a bright future. If you think about MRI, it's basically a magnet hooked up to a computer. So all the technological advances that are advancing computers are dragging MRI along with it. And I think the images speak for themselves. And really, the things that have been holding cardiac MRI back tend to be man-made issues, political issues, economic issues, slowness of adoption due to wrong incentives. And I think that the future for cardiac MRI is extremely bright. And it will, as wonderful a tool as it is now, it will be even more wonderful over the next decade. Any listeners out there who would like to get to know you better or to learn more from you? I know that you uh, do a lot of cardiac MR workshops and you're an active teacher out there. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about um, where people can just gain more experience from you? Uh, we have a, a website, a free website called cardiacmri.com, which has a focus on trying to help people that are interested in doing cardiac MRI. It doesn't focus as much on the papers that have been written, but it tries to answer the questions of, how do I assess a patient with a cardiomyopathy? How do I measure somebody who has aortic stenosis? It includes everything from basic physics and techniques where we go through all the different pulse sequences to having uh, po written policies and procedures that which you can download and modify and submit to your hospital. It includes examples of sample cases, examples of sample reports. So you can see what is in a report for a patient that might have mitral regurgitation, for instance, and how, how those reports look. It also has video lectures by me. So I think it's, it's really focused on trying to teach people how to do cardiac MRI. Thank you so much, Dr. Wolf. I think this has been a fantastic discussion and conversation, and we're very thankful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.